Welcome back to the NISO experience. We hope that you are enjoying the sessions today, and we are excited to continue the fantastic programming that we have been striving to bring to you. I am NISO's president-elect, Dr. Ken Webb. I'm also proud to serve on this year's NISO Experience Planning Committee. We are pleased to bring a session to you today from Dr. Neil Kravitz to our NISO Experience attendees. Dr. Kravitz's session is entitled Canine Substitution and Canine Impaction where he will review bracket selection for canine substitutions, review bracket placement pearls for torque control of impacted canines, discuss the open exposure technique, and also discuss basic cantilever appliances for labially displaced canines. Before we start the session, allow me to introduce our friend, Dr. Neil Kravitz. Dr. Kravitz is a diplomat of the American Board of Orthodontics, a member of the Edward Angle Honor Society, and associate editor for the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics. Dr. Kravitz is a graduate of Columbia University and went to dental school and received his orthodontic training at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also a prolific writer for numerous journals. Dr. Kravitz lectures throughout the country and internationally on treatment planning, biomechanics, practice management, and ethics. Dr. Kravitz, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm gonna share my screen and then we'll get started. Sounds great. Okay. Thank you, Ken. Such an honor. You are a great friend and a colleague, and it means so much to be with NISO today. This is a fun presentation. It's really two presentations in one. We'll talk a little bit about canine substitution, and then we'll talk a little bit about canine impaction. I think both these types of cases are stressful for orthodontics. And I love sharing pearls, I love sharing my techniques, and hopefully by the end of this presentation, you're able to pick up a few clinical pearls, both for substitution cases, cases where you're taking the canine and substituting it for the lateral incisor, and canine impaction cases, because in many ways, these cases are tied together, and a lot of these pearls overlap. So let's begin with canine substitution. Today's presentation, we'll talk a little bit about agenesis. I want you to know the prevalence and the genetics. We'll go through this topic quickly, but I do think understanding the genetic component of uh, missing lateral incisors is important when treating these cases. We'll talk about proper case selection and how this has expanded from when I was taught canine substitution. The most important part of this presentation is choosing the appropriate bracket. And if we have time, I'll mention a few things about aesthetics and bonding and my retention technique. If you see a yellow box during any of my presentations, that yellow box, uh, either around the slide or around the image, is a clue to the audience member to pay attention. I think that is an important picture, an important slide. If you have a screenshot, take that of the, of the, of the presentation or use your smartphone and take a picture of the screen, because I think that is a key element that I'm trying to teach during the presentation. As always, please remember to support the AAOF. So when we're dealing with substitutions, we have a lot of problems that we want to address. Now, all the cases that you're going to see um, are cases where we did not do any type of veneering. It's important that I want you to see the actual canine uh, in its natural form, in its substituted place. And what we have to deal with when we're dealing with substitutions are challenges such as prominence, darker colors, 
Bolton discrepancies. We have what they, I call a high, high, low gingival margin. Traditionally, we want a high, low, high gingival margin going from central to substituted canine to substituted premolar. We have the diminutive premolars that are substituted in the canine position. We have a lateral interference when the thicker canine is banging on the lower lateral incisor, which causes premature wear and anterior spacing. So we have all these problems that we have to address and they all affect the stability and the aesthetics. And I hope to address as many of them as possible during this presentation. So let's quickly go over lateral agenesis, which will lead us to our substitution treatment plan. When we deal with the occurrence of maxillary lateral agenesis, it occurs in 2% of the population and bilateral cases are more common. So that's a very easy mnemonic. The upper twos are missing in 2% of the population and bilateral is more common than unilateral. There's a higher prevalence in females. And we think with many uh, tooth agenesis uh, etiologies that it's associated with genetic mutations in MSX1 and the Pax9 gene. So we know there's a genetic relationship with missing lateral incisors. So we see other phenotypic expressions. We see missing third molars along with missing lateral incisors. We definitely see palatally displaced canines. Remember Sheldon Peck's wonderful contribution, which was the genetic association of palatally displaced canines. So we see missing lateral incisors and PDCs, and we'll talk about that in the second part of the presentation. Also second premolar agenesis and premolar rotations. So you see all these common phenotypic expressions. And that's what I want you to notice. So when you see a missing lateral incisor, immediately look at that panoramic radiograph for other genetic anomalies. Because if you're missing the upper twos and you're missing the lower fives, maybe you do an upper sub lower five extraction case and treat it like a four bicuspid treatment plan. So those are all the things that I want you to be thinking about while you're going through this presentation. So here's a classic panoramic radiograph that may present the patient's missing the upper twos. The ectopic canines have actually positioned themselves nicely into the lateral incisor position. You can see root blunting on the central incisors. There's a missing lower right five and a lower right eight. So this is the classic presentation where you're not just gonna find one genetic anomaly. You're gonna see multiple, they're gonna come in groups. And, and if you see that, uh, that may influence your treatment plan. So what I do when I see a case if I see peg laterals or missing lateral incisors, I immediately look to see if I see palatally displaced canines. And if I have that, I'm also looking to see if I have missing or rotated lateral incisors or even mesial angular mandibular second molar. So what I want you to get from this section is there's a genetic prevalence. If you're missing your upper twos or if you have peg upper twos, look for impacted upper threes, look for missing lower fives because that may influence your treatment plan. So case selection. Now, traditionally we are taught that case selection is dependent on two things, the amount of mandibular crowding and the patient's profile. But I'm gonna challenge this at the end. So traditionally we have a class one case with missing upper lateral incisors and severe crowding in the lower. We're gonna treat that like a four bicuspid case. We're gonna do an upper sub, with lower premolar extractions. In fact, we get into trouble as a profession because we do not extract enough in the lower arch 
during our substitution cases. We try to run heavy class three elastics all throughout treatment, which causes an inadequate overjet. And that thick upper canine bangs on that lower lateral incisor, which causes premature wear, but also space reopening. And if you're doing your own bonding on the mesial corner of the substituted canine, that bonding usually chips off because you don't have enough overjet. So if you have a class one case with missing upper twos and moderate to severe lower crowding, take out the lower fours or the lower fives. You'll never regret it. Now, if you have a class two patient with mild or no mandibular crowding, what's well, just like an upper bicuspid case. We do an upper substitution with a no lower extractions and that works out pretty well. So most people are familiar with these two criteria, particularly the second one, class two, mild mandibular crowding. We're gonna treat like an upper bicuspid plan. So here are images of the two cases that may present to you. Remember, uh, uh, substituted canines missing lateral incisors typically happen bilaterally. So look at the first option, a class one patient with a missing upper right two and a peg upper left two, a bilateral occurrence, okay? And severe crowding in the lower arch, we're gonna do upper left two, lower four extractions and treat it like a four bicuspid case. On the bottom, we have enough overjet to treat this patient uh, with simply upper, upper arch consolidation. And we're gonna treat this uh, like an upper bicuspid extraction case with just upper substitution without lower extractions. Okay. So here's a classic case where we would do a substitution. She's class two, she's retronathic. Oops, go back to that for a second. She's class two, she's retronathic, and we're gonna finish her full step molar class two uh, with a canine sub and no extractions in the lower arch. Classic presentation. So the question that we ask ourselves, is this presentation, is this uh, criteria of class one with missing upper twos and moderate lower crowding or class twos with no lower crowding and antiquated uh, criteria? Can we do this now on class three patients? And the answer is probably yes. And I'll tell you why. We're learning that anterior dental implants are not as great as we once thought they were. So traditionally we were said, but if we have a patient who's hypoplastic in the upper jaw, who's deficient in the upper jaw, no way would we ever do a substitution because um, we are only going to have a small arch and it's gonna be harder to achieve positive overjet. So if you're class three, we're gonna reopen space for anterior dental implants. But what we are learning from research is that as quickly as five years after placing an anterior dental implant in the lateral incisor position, that you have major aesthetic problems. You have inferocclusion, resorption of the labial bone, bluing of the gingiva. That anterior dental implant does not look good. And as I like to say, the only people who recommend implants are people who've never had implants. I have many implants and I definitely do not recommend them. So if a patient is class three, has a gummy smile, what if we do a substitution by reopening space in the posterior? So we're moving the canine into the lateral position, the premolar into the canine position and opening space for a third premolar. So that is where the criteria has expanded. And this criteria was taught to me by Dr. Bjorn Ludwig. So again, class one patient, missing upper twos, moderate to severe mandibular crowding, do upper two, lower four, upper two, lower five treatment plan. We have that. For a class two patient, we're not gonna extract in the lower arch, we're retronathic in the lower arch. So we're gonna do 
upper twos or upper substitution, no lower extractions. But if you are class three and you have a gummy smile and we're worried about aesthetics from that anterior dental implant, we still can do a substitution by opening space for an implant in the posterior region. So we are gonna have an implant, but we're gonna put it in the premolar region, not the lateral incisor region. So we still can do a substitution. So I created an illustration. I hope you like all these illustrations. One of my patients uh, is a graphic designer and we've worked very hard to create illustrations. And this is a paper I hope to write one day. So here we have a class one patient with moderate to severe crowding. We're doing an upper sub and we've done lower premolar extractions. We have a class two patient. We've done upper sub without lower extractions. And here we have our class three gummy patient We've still done an upper substitution, but we've reopened space for that third premolar implant, an upper 4A, as I would like to call it in my practice, okay? It brings me to an interesting pearl that I like to share. In my office, if you are missing anterior teeth, I do not like to do phase one. I don't like to do a whole lot of phase one in general, but here we have a patient with a functional shift due to a, uh, a crossbite. She's got a narrow upper arch and she's banging on that lower right C. Now there's nothing wrong doing an expander, but I see that she's missing her upper twos and she's a little protrusive. And this patient probably down the road will be an upper substitution with maybe lower four or lower five extractions. So rather than doing an upper expander, and there's nothing wrong doing an upper expander, I just take a burr and I equilibrate uh, that canine and the interference goes away and the midlines line back up again. And that's all I do for the first phase, no cost, of course. But it, it leads me to the interesting point that I wanna make. If you're missing anterior teeth, do not expand unless you have a severe crossbite with a functional shift, if you know you are simply going to um, uh, do a substitution in comprehensive treatment. Okay, now the most important part of this presentation is bracket selection. Uh, bracket selection is really about hiding the prominence of the maxillary canine. Now, um, when we're dealing with a class one patient, we are most concerned about the substituted uh, canines, making those canines look like lateral incisors. But if you have a class two patient, if we're not extracting in the lower arch, I do want to remind you of uh, Rick McLaughlin's pearl of using lower second molar bands on the upper sixes and sevens, because we're gonna finish class two molar in the upper arch. And by using lower molar bands on the upper molars, we don't have that distal offset and it allows us to keep that molar rolled mesial in. We don't wanna roll that molar mesial out because we do want it to be full step class two. So this is the most important slide of the presentation. This goes over the different bracket choices that you can use on a substituted canine. Now, I was always taught to flip a canine bracket. Now, there's a problem with this on a number of different uh, levels. And in, my, in many ways, I actually think it's the worst option of the four. Now, we're taught to flip, don't switch. The rule of flip, don't switch means that if you flip a bracket 180 degrees, you reverse the torque without affecting the tip. Now, we commonly flip lateral incisor brackets to establish labial root torque. Well, here we were taught to flip canine brackets to go from palatal to 
lingual, uh, to, 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 go, to go from buccal to lingual root torque. Now, when you're looking at the torque at the bottom of the page, you'll see uh, pluses. Think of pluses as back onto bone. So anytime we have a plus, we're going palatal. When every time we have a, a negative, we're going away from bone, we're going labial. Now, a canine bracket, at best, will have uh, minus six degrees of torque in its normal orientation or minus seven degrees of torque of uh, labial root torque in its normal orientation. Uh, so flipping it gives us only seven degrees of palatal root torque. But I will tell you, most manufacturers have zero degree torque canine brackets. Uh, so a lot of us are using zero degree torque canine brackets. So flipping a canine bracket uh, isn't gonna do much. Now, if you look at the other options, you can use a same side central incisor bracket or a same size lateral incisor bracket. I think the second most popular option that people use is a same size, same side lateral incisor bracket. Now a lateral incisor has more torque than a flip canine. Uh, it has 10 degrees of palatal root torque. The problem with a lateral incisor bracket is the thickness of the bracket. The thicker bracket is used to create that lateral step-in. Now I will tell you, I don't think people like lateral step-ins anymore. Most uh, patients, particularly adult women, want that lateral step out and step down. Uh, but most lateral brackets are a little bit thicker. And now you're dealing with a thicker canine crown that pushes that canine in, which causes that premature interference with that lower lateral incisor. And it prevents you from extruding the, la uh, the, the canine the way you want it. So I do not like using a lateral incisor because the torque is insufficient and the bracket is thicker. I prefer to use the same side central incisor bracket. You can see that on the far left. So uh, a same side central incisor bracket has 17 degrees of palatal root torque. So we have a lot of root torque to hide that canine root prominence and make it look like a lateral incisor. Nice big wide bracket base, both a central and a lateral will require you to do enamelloplasty first. Because of that, you can consider using Marco Rosa's technique, where he uses a flipped lower second premolar bracket. This is where it gets a little confusing. The lower second premolars in their proper orientation will have 17 degrees of minus 17 degrees of torque, 17 degrees of buccal root torque to give you that nice curve of Wilson. If we flip the lower second premolar bracket, so the post is now incisal, now we have plus 17 degrees of torque. We have 17 degrees of palatal root torque, just like a central incisor bracket, but we have a curved bracket base and that curved bracket base allows you to delay enameloplasty. Now it's confusing because it's coming from the lower arch. So the post is incisal, but the bracket looks like it's just being transposed. So it is flipped. The bracket uh, is going, the post is going from gingival to incisal. That's how you go from minus 17 degrees to plus 17 degrees. Uh, the benefit of Marco Rosa's technique is you get to use that curved bracket base. So here's a patient in my office, and this is what we're doing. We are running four central incisor brackets. If you look real closely, 
Upper one, 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 one. All four brackets are the same. You can barely uh, detect any canine root prominence. Uh, and we're running those class three supportive elastics. Maybe in hindsight, I would have taken out her lower thighs. So this is a very important slide and an illustration that I created. This is our setup in our office for a substitution case. We're gonna be using central, 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 central for our bilateral substitution. Our substituted canines get enameloplasty. The problem with the lateral incisor, remember, not only does it have less um, palatal root torque than a central, 10 degrees versus 17 degrees, it has that thicker bracket base, that thicker bracket base pushes that thicker canine backwards into the lower lateral incisor. It prevents me from extruding the canine the way I want to get that nice gingival aesthetics. And I have to step out the tooth and step it down. Now, stepping out the tooth actually will add some palatal root torque, um, but in general, I just prefer a central incisor bracket. This is Dr. Rosa's technique. Anytime you have a chance to listen to Marco Rosa lecture on canine substitution or pick up an article where he's written about canine substitution, I encourage you to do so. He is truly the world's greatest orthodontist on this subject. And here he is using lower second premolar brackets. They are flipped. So the post is incisal. And that's how we go from minus 17 degrees to plus 17 degrees. There's no need for enameloplasty. Now, if you want to get very specific, I'm using a lower left five on the upper right three and a lower right five on the upper left three. I am switching the brackets because there is a little bit of tip in our brackets. Dr. Rosa uses premolar brackets without any tip, so he won't switch. Uh, but if you're using the MBT prescription, there's a little bit of distal tip. So I'm gonna use the lower left five on the upper right three. But again, my preference is to use a central incisor bracket. And this explains that transposition uh, to you. Here we have a lower left five and I'm putting the bracket on the upper right three. The bracket is flipped, but it's going from lower, to up, uh, from lower arch to the upper arch. So it looks like the bracket is just being transposed, but you have to imagine putting it in proper orientation and then flipping the post uh, incisal, okay? So the, the post goes incisal. We want that positive 17 degrees of torque. So I get a lot of questions about premolar aesthetics. So it's a paper that I'm writing um, where I talk a little bit about the premolar, which is the kind of the forgotten tooth and substitution cases. So here you have my setup of uh, the central incisor on the substituted canine. And we are taught to extrude the canine and intrude the premolar. Extruding the canine gives you the better gingival margin, stepping that tooth down. And intruding the premolar uh, gives you the better gingival margin. By intruding the tooth, uh, you need minimal enameloplasty, minimal cuspoplasty, and you're ready to uh, receive veneers on the canine and first premolar. And that is a very European model, but I don't have many patients who are going to get veneered. So even though ex, uh, extruding the canine and intruding the premolar gives you that nice high, low, high gingival margin that we like, um, again, that's only to be done in preparation for veneers. So what do we do if we're not going to do veneers? One, we probably have to accept a diminutive looking premolar. But what I like to do is take the bracket, this is very important, 
and move the premolar bracket a little bit to the distal. Now it does not matter whether you use a canine bracket or a first premolar bracket on a substituted premolar because both the canine bracket and a first premolar bracket have zero degrees of root torque. Uh, I just use a first premolar bracket. I actually think most people probably use a canine bracket, but again, you should be fine as long as you're using zero degree torque brackets. But the key here is to take your premolar bracket and move it a little distal. By moving it distal, the premolar will rotate mesial in. Now, if you remember from your dental boards, the maxillary first premolar has a lot of unusual anatomy on its mesial surface. It has the distinct mesial marginal ridge, has a mesial uh, marginal ridge groove, has a distinct mesial depression. Uh, and by rotating the tooth mesial in, you hide those uh, anomalies and the first premolar will look like the canine. And it also prevents the patient from looking directly at the premolar embouchure. So we wanna take that premolar and rotate it inward to make it look more like a canine. And we do so by taking your bracket and moving it distal. So here we have a case, uh, and if you can take a look, you'll see the premolar bracket is moved to the distal to rotate the substituted premolar mesial in. And this will give you very nice aesthetics, and it prevents you from looking at that embouchure between the substituted upper three and upper four. So let's go over mistakes, because I always like to show mistakes. Here we have a nice case with nice aesthetics. But if you look at the occlusal view, on the upper left, I've had the premolar properly uh, bracketed. I had the bracket to the distal, and that tooth rolled mesial in. But if you look at the right, I did not. And you have your classic uh, premolar that is not rotated mesial in. And if you look at it from the frontal view with the yellow circle, you can see the distinct embouchure from the frontal surface, front frontal view that patients do not like. Patients commonly complain about that space. So to avoid looking at all that mesial anatomy that we don't want to be looking at on that maxillary first premolar, put the bracket to the distal and rotate that tooth inward. So in summary, my setup technique for a substitution case is same side central incisor with enameloplasty. I like a central incisor because we have the 17 degrees of palatal root torque. I use a first premolar bracket, but you can use a canine bracket. And I take that bracket and I push it a little to the distal to rotate the substituted premolar mesial inward. Here's a great summary slide of that section. Same side central incisor bracket, and if on the premolar bracket, remember, move it a little bit distal. And as I said before, if you're finishing class two, remember Rick McLaughlin's technique of using the lower sevens on the upper sixes and sevens. Canine impactions. This is the second part of the presentation. This will be about 20 minutes where we'll talk about buccal and uh, labial uh, and, ling uh, and lingual impa uh, impactions. Okay, so let's do a quick overview of the lecture. We'll quickly go over genetics, um, the genetic theory and the uh, guidance theory. We'll talk about the open exposure technique. I'll talk about when I use apically positioned flaps, the Van Arsdale technique, particularly um, uh, my use of cantilever arches. 
and I can talk about a few retention strategies if we have time. So let's go over ectopic canines quickly. So remember that rule. We know that for palatally displaced canines, there is a genetic component. So ectopic canines occur in 3% of the population. They're three times more likely in females. Remember, uh, lateral agenesis is more common in women. And they're three times more likely, even more so on the palate. So that's an easy mnemonic to remember. Ectopic upper threes occur in 3% of the population, three times more likely in women, and more than three times more likely on the palate. So there's two etiologies that we talk about. Becker's guidance theory that um, canine impactions happen because of a lack of guidance from the lateral incisor, a missing lateral incisor, or an interference, an odontoma, failure to resorb the deciduous canine, any number of reasons, or Peck's theory that this is part of a larger genetic component where you see other genetic anomalies in the mouth, and they're probably both correct. So here's that guidance theory where those mesial angular upper canines with that tortuous path of eruption need that distal contour of the lateral incisor to erupt in the mouth. And that leads us to that broad bent phenomenon that we see in young children where we push the lateral incisor roots mesial, which pushes the central incisor roots mesial, which causes that early diastema. And as the canine slides further down the root, the anterior teeth upright and the diastema closes somewhat. So what do we know from the literature? We know that pallidly displaced canines, pallidly displaced canines have a genetic component and they're associated with other dental anomalies, particularly lateral agenesis. We know that if we take out the deciduous canines early, Yuri Kurel said that we can do uh, autocorrection of those pallidly displaced canines 78% of the time. Steve Lindauer said it's not enough to take out C and H, we need to take out CNH before the canine crosses the midline of the lateral incisor. Because once that, that canine crosses the midline of the lateral incisor, uh, there's a greater chance that tooth will get stuck. And we actually know from CT studies that once those teeth are overlapping, there's about a 50% chance that they're already touching. Leonardi said that if we use a headgear, if we distalize the upper arch, maybe even a Herbst appliance, for example, and we extract CNH, we increase our chance of bringing in those impacted canines. And Army said that we don't need to just use a headgear. If we expand, distalize, and take out CNH, we're also increasing our chances. So to improve autocorrection of ectopic canines, take out CNH or take out BCHNI, but also consider uh, using um, some type of space gainer, such as a headgear or a herpes appliance, or consider expanding as, long, as well as extracting the deciduous teeth. And this is the great uh, illustration from Steve Lindauer's uh, research paper. So here's a classic panoramic radiograph that you might see um, dealing with ectopic canines. So we have pallidly displaced canines, undersized lateral incisors, missing mandibular second premolars, the deciduous teeth are in infra occlusion. It looks like we may not develop our wisdom teeth. Uh, this is all part of that same idea that pallidly displaced canines usually carry the same phenotypic expression as other uh, dental anomalies. So remember that if you see peg laterals, look for uh, pallidly displaced canines 
look for other teeth. Perhaps in this case, uh, maybe you're gonna do a four by extraction approach uh, rather than just simply expanding and going after those canines um, because you have the missing lower fives. Now, if you are going to bond brackets in the first phase, I try to avoid it, but if you are going to bond brackets in the presence of ectopic teeth, remember to keep those slots parallel to the floor. It is critical that we don't add premature distal root tip into the path of the erupting canine. So what I like to do in my office is not bond brackets while I'm bringing in ectopic teeth, but if I have to, I am gonna keep the slot parallel to the floor or even add more mesial root tip to my lateral incisors. And the goal is really to avoid iatrogenic root resorption. I'm gonna stay in round wires. I, I am gonna keep things very light. And I'm really trying to create like a funnel for those canines to erupt. This brings me to another point that I actually have theories that um, protraction face masks in the presence of uh, ectopic canines can actually shorten the arch length and you can actually uh, push the posterior dental segment forward and further impact uh, ectopic teeth. So labially displaced canines don't have a genetic component, but they're usually associated with arch length insufficiency. So a lot of times we need to do expansion. And if they are deficient in the upper jaw, we need to expand and protract. But be careful on that protraction. In our office, I do not protract until those canines slide further down the root of the lateral incisor. I do not want my protraction uh, face mask to worsen my canine impaction. Make sure that if you're advancing the maxilla, you're also advancing upper two to two as well. Um, this is a point that I would like to emphasize that was mentioned at a NISO meeting a few years ago by Jeff Kozlowski. Jeff gave a wonderful lecture on impacted canines and Jeff said, use one surgeon. So if Jeff is listening, I wanna give him a shout out. He is a great exemplar for me and a great friend. And I screamed when he said that because it is something that I believe fully. This is Dr. Patel, who is the oral surgeon near me. Uh, and we work next to so many great surgeons, but I encourage you guys to just work with one surgeon for your impacted cases, because there is a difference and you will see a difference in quality if uh, your patients go to different oral surgeons. And you really are looking for a surgeon who communicates well. So here this doctor is emailing me the CT images, texting me with suggestions, telling me how uh, I need my path of activation to be. This communication is critical. And I have problems when my patients go to other surgeons. Uh, and, and I really have a point now where when I refer to this doctor, I tell the patient, you are forbidden to go to anywhere else uh, for this specific procedure. So for this procedure, this is the doctor you must go to. And I really emphasize it that, that firmly. Uh, so when doing impacted teeth, work with just one surgeon. So pallidly displaced canines. Well, we said pallidly displaced canines are associated with genetic anomalies. Now, what I like to do in my office is treat a pallidly displaced canine with an open exposure. So before I start the case, I want that tooth to erupt in the mouth. So we have an ectopic canine. I'm gonna refer for C and H. I'm gonna refer for B, C, H, and I. 
get that 78% auto correction up to about 84, or 86%. But if it still doesn't work, or if that patient comes in late and that canine has crossed over the root of the lateral incisor, what I am going to do is refer for an open exposure. And this is for obviously pally displaced canines. And what we're doing here is the oral surgeon is creating a hole in the tissue down to the CEJ, placing some barricade over the canine. There is an eyelet bonded to the canine. That eyelet helps hold the barricade. It's also a radiographic marker. And we're gonna wait four to six months until that canine emerges in the mouth, at which point I'll peel off the barricade before we start. Now this patient's in a TPA. I just did a complimentary TPA while we were waiting for these teeth to erupt. Uh, but I have not yet started treatment and I'm only gonna start treatment once that canine fully comes in the mouth. I encourage you all, if you're thinking about doing open exposures, to buy impacted teeth uh, uh, by Dr. Kokic and Dr. Matthews. Uh, this is one of my favorite books. Uh, Doug Knight, who is a wonderful orthodontist, uh, has contributed many cases in this book, and it is a wonderful visual illustration uh, if you're interested in open exposure or if your oral surgeon is interested in learning about open exposure. So what you can see from that image is the surgeon did the open exposure down to the CJ. He actually did it on the other side as well. He took out the deciduous canines, which you don't have to do, but I actually prefer to do it if we can. One of the benefits of open exposure is you can keep C and H in if you're worried about the aesthetics or if your patient is concerned about the aesthetics. Um, and then you also saw the surgeon luxate the canine off the root of the lateral incisor. Uh, and then here the patient comes back uh, after about four to six months at which point I simply peel off the barricade, uh, which is a, a rubbery um, uh, type of healing cover over the tooth. And now we're ready to begin treatment. And instead of having patients in treatment for three years, you'll be in treatment for under 24 months with this open exposure technique. You've kept the main thing, the main thing, which is getting the canine in the mouth safely. Uh, and I can't tell you, it really avoids those consults where you walk in the room and say, oh my God, you have to start treatment today. I tell parents, you don't have to start braces today, but we do want to address these teeth uh, as soon as possible. That's the applying of the barricade, that's simple. They simply use a little bit of Vaseline, they cover over the tooth. Remember that tooth has the eyelet on it and they place the barricade on and the barricade will stay on until the tooth emerges and until I peel it off a few months later. And this is what we're looking at before we start treatment. So this case is very simple and very streamlined. When I'm bringing that tooth in the arch, I prefer using a piggyback technique where 
I have a base arch wire and I'm putting the nighttime wire over top the base wire. Some people like to go underneath it, but I like to go over top of it and I'm gonna be pulling that tooth. And what I want you to see from this slide is you must create a tooth and a half of space. A lot of problems with impacted canines happen because we do not create enough room to bring those canines in the arch. Create a tooth and a half of space. And a little pearl that you can use is remember that ROSA technique where the lower premolar, the lower second premolar had 17 degrees of buckle root torque. Well, if we don't flip it, here we, hear me out here. If we don't flip, if we use the lower second premolar in its proper orientation, now with the post gingival, we can use that 17 degrees of buckle root torque to help out uh, our palatally displaced canine. So if you have a palatally displaced canine and you want to get nice root prominence, use a lower second premolar bracket properly oriented and that will help give you the proper buckle root torque. There's a lot of effort to get to this slide in terms of telling the complete story, but I, I hope that makes sense. It's a nice little pearl on how to use the second premolar uh, twice. It's a very versatile bracket. So for open exposures, I refer for CT and the open exposure. Oftentimes I encourage C and H to be extracted, sometimes even DC, H and I. The surgery will go down to the CEJ. The surgeon will bond an eyelet and apply the barricade. I remove the barricade after four to six months, only after the canine emerges. And then I start the bonding. You can do an expander at that point if you want. But remember, before you bring that canine labial, create a tooth and a half of space. For labially displaced canines, remember, there's not so much of a genetic component as there is an arch length insufficiency. So my pearl that I want you to get when dealing with labially displaced canines, for poly displaced canine, my pearl is take out deciduous teeth. If it doesn't work, do an open exposure. But for labially displaced canines, here's my pearl. It's gonna sound crazy. I want you to overexpand. Overexpand. Don't do 30 turns, do 35 to 40 turns. I believe that if you overexpand, here you can see a patient where we've done significant expansion. We are almost in a Brody bite. But if you look at her canines on the panoramic radiographs, they have completely self-corrected without any type of surgical intervention, at which point I take out the expander and let everything just collapse without retention uh, prior to doing uh, our uh, comprehensive phase of orthodontics. So I believe the key to helping out labially displaced canines is to overexpand. And I will even, if I have to, though I don't love it, create a buckle crossbite temporarily because my main goal is to get those canines in safely. If I need to apply a chain, I prefer to use an apically positioned flap where we are lifting up the attached gingiva. I want to see the canine. It's not always possible, but if I can, I want to do it. And my surgeon is instructed to lift the canine off the root of the lateral incisor. And my first movement isn't just back, it's actually out and then back. So we're taught never to bring it down, but to bring it back. But you can still shear through the lateral incisor. So the true safety is labial. Go outward, then go backward, and then go downward. So take it outward. That's how you get it away from that lateral incisor. Okay. All right. So keep those slots parallel, as we talked about. Avoid uh, bonding a bracket on that lateral incisor. 
And one thing that I want you to get from this slide is if the canine is on the lateral incisor, don't even put a bracket on the lateral incisor. Skip that tooth entirely. Uh, now, sometimes when the canines are in such a bad position, I will extract the canines. I've never understood the reason why we extract first premolars and go after very challenging impacted uh, um, canines. So here's a patient uh, where we have done a uh, canine extraction. And if we take a look at her x-ray, you can see nice aesthetics and a nice final result with a wiggle right down the middle. Good aesthetics, okay. She's class three hypoplastic. But if you take a look at her CT scan, you'll see that her canine erupted on top of her lateral incisor. It would have been a very tricky procedure to try to bring her canine into the canine position. Instead, I simply extracted her upper threes and her lower fours. So don't be afraid to extract uh, canines if you have to. Uh, simplify uh, the surgery, um, modify the mechanics. Uh, what we don't wanna do after we do a surgical exposure is to lose the lateral incisor. So in our office, I have no problem extracting one or two canines uh, if they are in a bad position. Now, if we are going to try to bring these teeth in, what I like to use is a buccal cantilever. My favorite line that I always say is cantilevers save lateral incisors. So here we are using a cantilever for a labially displaced canine. And the first movement is outward. I'm gonna bring the canine out, then I'll bring it back, and then I'll bring it down. Once the, can uh, the tooth uh, becomes visible and I can put a bracket on it, don't be afraid to use these ceramic burrs for quick exposures. Now I have a spectrolase that I love, but here is a ceramic burr. So the ceramic burr is a nice quick way to do a uh, exposure um, in place of a diode laser. I don't recommend them uh, for gingivectomies, uh, but if you need to do a quick um, a tissue removal, uh, consider getting ceramic burrs. They're about $100 each. Comet sells them, Kerr sells them, uh, and they are wonderful. Uh, so something to consider. So to review, labeling displaced canines are due to arch length insufficiency over expand 35 or more turns. Don't be afraid of a temporary buckle crossbite. And if you go after those teeth, consider using an apically positioned flap, 
and some type of TPA or expander with a buccal cantilever. Your first movement, it should be labial, then distal, and then back inward. For pallidly displaced canines, consider an open exposure technique. Delay the start of treatment until those teeth erupt in the mouth or emerge in the mouth, at which point you can remove the barricade and begin treatment. Thank you guys for this wonderful presentation. Neil, that, that was great. You know, it, it's interesting, a, a great pearl. A lot of the tools are already in our toolbox. Creative oh, yeah. use, placement of brackets, creative use of brackets, take advantage of the, what's programmed into the slot of the brackets to aid for your advantage, to aid what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. I, 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 I think um, torque is really something that um, unfortunately is not taught uh, well, uh, and I will say that it is one of the things that I struggle with greatly. Um, and uh, one of the ways I like to address torque rather than um, bonding the brackets, uh, placing torque in the wire is mm -hmm. by just adjusting the, um, which bracket I'm putting on the tooth. So much easier. Now, uh, you mentioned two options for uh, the canine uh, substitution brackets, uh, central incisors or flipped lower fives. What do you prefer to use? I prefer central. I, I actually think it looks better, to be honest with you. Now, what I did on the on the slide is I I, I dotted out the post because I think a lot of times I will just cut the post off mm -hmm. if I'm using a lower five. Uh, but I prefer central incisor. So to review, I go one 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 one, and I'm actually if I'm going from central to substituted premolar, it's going to be one one and I use the fours, but a lot of people use the threes. And the fours and the threes are interchangeable. For the premolar bracket, remember, it's not the bracket that matters because they both have zero torque. It's mm -hmm. the position. The position should be distal to rotate that substituted premolar mesial. So I like a central. I think it looks better. I think it works really well. And uh, the only time to avoid it is if a patient has aversion to you drilling their tooth on day one, you know, and then you can just use that. But I, I, I wanted to introduce Rosa's technique because it had that nice hand and glove fit to when you were bringing in a poly displaced canine, mm -hmm. you can use the premolar properly oriented to give you buccal root torque. Uh, and that's just a nice old school technique. Yeah, but super important too to enamelplasty, buff down the rounded surface, labial surface of that canine so the central bracket's going to sit correct. First, yeah, yeah, yeah. To get the torque, it's all about getting the torque control. Yeah, you bet. Now, impacted canines, for, for years, decades, if you will, it was always closed exposures with chains. I, I personally like an open exposure myself. Why, how do you feel about that? Why do you yeah. like open exposure? So, 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 and remember, the open exposure is going to be for the paddle, right? So mm -hmm. very simple, but just a simple point just to make. Uh, but your life is so much easier. So you're not going to have treatments where you're, you're that going to go on for four plus years. Uh, treatment is streamlined. It's shorter. It's easier. There's no discomfort of tugging. There's also many times where uh, your vector is wrong and you are causing shearing on the lateral incisor. There's many times where the patient has really thick palatal tissue and rugae and they have a soft tissue impaction and you have to go back in there with a laser to open it up. So none of that stuff happens with open exposures. I can't tell you how much more streamlined your treatment will be if you do an open exposure. Keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is to get your canine in safely. Um, you will do one of them. You will never regret it. Um, I guess the only disadvantage is the canine may come in a little bit more medially, right? A little bit more toward the midline. Uh, but, but 
It's very simple, very easy. I've never had one patient who hasn't been thrilled. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, there's a real advantage if one orthodontist is saying, you need to do an expander and a chain today. And you're saying, well, you don't have to do that. That's not a bad idea, but you just need to expose the tooth and we can start you in six months. And um, I think that's, that, 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 that separates the finances for the patient, uh, lets them wrap their head around the idea of doing braces. Uh, and it really has taken away the emergency. Uh, um, and again, it's, it's really comforting to be able to see your canine by the time you're ready to get started, which is why I like a, a, an eight-blue position flap on the labial if possible. Right. I know one thing I do is if, uh, what you mentioned about trying to work with the same oral surgeon is so I can't stress that enough. Oh, so important. I can't, I, I, and I tell the surgeon, I go, you know, I, I, but for this technique, I look the pair in the face and I say, I, you were not allowed to go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And then for wisdom teeth, go to anybody you want to go to, whoever right. did the, your, your, your sibling. But, but for this procedure, and I tell the parent there's a difference. And uh, I would almost, uh, frankly, uh, reduce my fee if, 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 they, if, if they were out of network uh, with mm -hmm. that surgeon to ensure that they go to that surgeon because the treatment is just different. Right. I mean, one thing I do is if, if they end up going to a surgeon I'm not familiar with, I'll call the individual, I'll send the individual post-exposure pictures of another <laughs> patient and say, this is what I, I want it to look like when they I walk don't. out of your office. I have anxiety. Oh, so the ulcer starts to sizzle. Right. When you get the phone call from the new other surgeon, you know what I said, it referred to you, buddy. I referred right. to the other guy, but it's hard. Um, but I, I really, I thought, you know, Jeff, when he's made that comment uh, at that great NISO meeting a few years ago, I screamed in Boston. I screamed. It was such a great point. I, I can't trust that enough. Uh, one surgeon for your impacted teeth. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Gee, Neil, I can't thank you enough for that well, fabulous you're, presentation. You're a huge friend. I hope I did okay, guys. Thank you so yeah, much thank for you the so opportunity. Much. Thank you so much. And, and to our audience, thank you all for joining us today. And please be sure to take the test and complete the session evaluation in order to receive your CE credits for this session. Thanks again, Neil. And thank Thanks, you so much, uh, Niso, for putting this session on.